Um, good morning, and thank you so much for tuning in and joining me. I'm here on my own, but there will be an opportunity afterwards to join all of us on Zoom and have a bit of time together in breakout rooms and share and just catch up, share God's word with each other, encourage one another. Looking forward to that. Went well last week. Um, let's go to Philippians. We're on a journey here through the book of Philippians. Um, we just started that last week with an introduction and then literally only covered a couple of verses at the start of the letter. Today the plan is to cover verses 3 to 11. And as I sort of embark on this, I'm quite confident that whenever I click done at the end of it, I will be disappointed because these, um, these verses and the words and the terminology that Paul uses here are they, they stir something in my heart that I'm quite confident I will not be able to get out of my mouth. Paul has a vision here, a picture for Christian community and for how to pray for one another that I think is absolutely incredible and beautiful and inspiring. And I hope that I can convey some of that through this. So this is uh, Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 to 11 and hopefully cover the whole lot. Verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And we thank God for his incredible inspired word. Paul starts off his letter the way he starts off nearly all of his letters. He gives thanks for them. Now, I don't know how you pray, but here's a good way to pray. And, and, and we will see again later on in this passage a model, uh, some inspiring words that we can use to pray for one another. But Paul begins by giving thanks for people. That is very powerful. He does not begin by praying and mentioning some names and saying, God, would you please straighten out that person because they're being a pain. And we do know later in the letter that a couple of people, a couple of ladies in the church weren't getting on. Yodia and Syntyche weren't, weren't seeing eye to eye about something. In chapter 4, he, he pleads with them to, to, to agree and to get on with one another. But at the start of the letter, he thanks God for all of them. All of them. 
So let's get a little discipline into our praying where we begin our praying by thanking God for the wonderful people that he has put in our lives, even if from time to time we're not seeing eye to eye on everything. How much would that change our relationships and our attitudes to one another if we had previously been thanking God for one another before we actually engage with each other? One of the things that that I try to do when I'm praying at home and praying with my family and with the children is a simple prayer of thank you God for and I name them. Simple as that. Because I think it's important for them to hear me giving thanks to God for the blessings that they are in my life. Learn to thank God for one another. And Paul says in in verse 3, I thank God every time I remember you. And it looks like that, you know, you could translate that every time I call you to mind. It looks like it's an intentional thing. He's not just sort of wandering around someday uh, or, or sitting in prison or whatever, and suddenly he thinks about his mate in a church somewhere and says, God, would you bless my mate and give him a good day? No, there's an intentionality about it. He is calling people to mind. He is disciplined about this. It's not just whoever sort of happens to be rattling around his head at any given time. I can see Paul with a list or with a memorized list of the people in his churches, calling them to mind one by one and thanking God for them. And he does it in verse 4 with joy. This church, and one of the reasons that the the letter to the Philippians is such a delight to read and to study, to ponder, is because they bring Paul such tremendous joy. Some of the other churches, he thanks God for them, but there's a few things going on that he has to correct. But here, he just, these people bring him joy. He loves them. Let me tell you, church, that it is not a word of exaggeration to say that I brag about you. In other contexts, whether it's in Forge or somewhere else, I will sit, I will tell people about the wonderful gift, the wonderful people that are together in this community of faith. I brag about you. You bring me joy and I thank God for you. And I think one of the reasons that Philippians has been in my mind for quite a while now is just that sense of separation. Paul longed to be with them and he couldn't. And we long to be together, but at the minute we can't. And he goes on in verse 5 to use, I think, one of the most powerful little phrases in all of his letters. He prays with joy in verse 4, because of your partnership in the gospel. Partnership in the gospel. In Greek, it's koinonia. It's a Greek word that you might have heard of, koinonia. Ice euangelion, partnership in the good news. And that word koinonia is one of those words in Greek that English just cannot do. One English word will not actually make do for for the breadth and the depth and the intensity of that Greek word koinonia, partnership in the gospel. So, So my Bible here says partnership, And you will find other translations that say participation in the gospel. You will find other translations will say fellowship in the gospel. 
And I don't agree with any of them. I agree with all of them. I think they are all attempts at grabbing something of this word. And I think they all grab part of, of what this word koinonia means. Fellowship in the gospel. The gospel unites people as friends, as family, as community. The gospel does that. If you have not been, been brought into a community of faith, then you have not fully experienced the gospel because it brings you together with a family of people. And the New Testament uses the words brothers and sisters. It brings you into a close group who are united by the gospel, united around the good news that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. That word fellowship in the gospel or friendship in the gospel, I love it. I love that idea that we are a community of people who in other contexts might not be friends, but we are united around the gospel and around Jesus. So I like to translate it fellowship in the gospel or friendship in the gospel. But I also like this phrase partnership in the gospel because the word koinonia could have meant, it could have had business connotations as well. People as partners working together in business. And the gospel has, is, is not only something that has united us as, as friends and as a community, a family, journeying through life together, centered on the gospel, but it has also united us in mission, that we are partners in the good news. We are partners in seeing what the kingdom of God looks like when it comes to a particular area or wider community outside the church. Alan Hirsch uses a word, communitas. I think he borrows it from somebody else, actually. I didn't have time to go and look it up. But to, it, it's to describe that sense of, of community that forms whenever you are on a life or death mission together. When you have each other's back. When working together is essential for survival. He uses or he borrows a description of, of, a, of a tribe, I think, I can't remember whether it's Africa or South America, where when the boys reach a certain age, they are taken away during the night from their homes, from their huts, and they are left out in the wild together on their own. And the, the men, the elders go back and leave them there. And those boys have to learn to work together to survive if they're going to make it back home. And when they make it back home, they are recognized as men and not boys anymore. But that word communitas describes that experience of being on a mission together where we have to unite and we have to work together. We cannot have someone who is slightly off track because that will compromise the mission. Everyone needs to be pulled in and kept together, partnership in the gospel. And another way it can be translated is participation in the gospel. That's another legitimate way to understand this word. And I think it's a great way to understand it because Paul uses the same phrase in 2 Corinthians. Let me read it. You'll, you'll recognize these words from the very end of 2 Corinthians Paul says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What does that mean, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? That's the koinonia of the Holy Spirit. And I think Paul there is almost summing up the gospel. It all starts with the love of God. It then comes through the grace of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And we might touch on this again later. But it is made real to us by the Holy Spirit. We participate in the gospel by participating in the Holy Spirit. We have that koinonia in the Spirit. And, and that we, we, we participate in what Christ has done in history becomes a reality in our lives, which we then bring to our communities because of the Holy Spirit. So I think there's, there's lots of different things that you can bring together to try to translate this. Partnership, friendship, fellowship, participation in the gospel. And it is, I think, just a picture of what the church should be. Should be all of those things. All of those things. United around the good news. And, and Paul goes on. I'll come back to verse 6 in a minute. But Paul goes on in verse 7 and 8 just to speak a little bit more in terms of the affection he has for them. Look at what he says. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains, he mentions his imprisonment, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is powerful language. Paul, I don't think, expected this letter to be read in Tandragee almost 2,000 years later. It was a private, personal letter to his friends in Philippi. And every Christian in Philippi was his friend. It wasn't as if he just had a wee special group. All of them were his friends. And he pours out deep affection. This is quite rare in ancient letters to speak with this depth of affection this, this uh, I have you in my heart. I don't know if you've ever gone to the supermarket to buy a card or a card shop. And you lift the cards and you read the stuff that's inside them. And it is unbearable mush. You're trying to buy a card for a man. Maybe for your dad for his birthday or Father's Day. And your dad's one of these hard-working, outdoor men you know, men of honor and integrity and, and sort of marks on their hands from working hard all their lives. And you pick up this card that's just full of all this mush that you couldn't possibly send, this flowery hallmark language. And then you finally find a card that says blank insight for you to write your own message. You're like, hallelujah. This affectionate language that Paul uses is, is getting close to some of that flowery language you find in cards. It is intense in its emotion and affection for the people. Do we have that for one another? I honestly do. I honestly do. I deeply yearn to be with this people, to be together again, not just to sing together. I want to sing together. Not just to, to, to share God's word together. I want to share God's word together in person. But just to be together. To eat together. To actually really, once again, put our roots down together in life. It's one of the things I think has got to be 
Probably one of the first priorities whenever lockdown is lifted is just hang on guys. Don't try to change the world for a few months. Just be together again. Be together again. Just make lots of time for one another. And be partners and friends and fellowship in the gospel once again. Deep, deep love. And we need this kind of thing to happen in the church today. This deep affection one for another. There is a consumer mindset in the church in the West that I think Paul would rail against very, very strongly. A sense of church is about what I get out of it. Or it's about what I like or what I don't like. So we shop around on the basis of our personal preferences like we are shopping around for coffee. Well, I prefer Starbucks. Well, actually, I prefer Costa. Well, I like to go to Ground. Well, I like to go to an independent coffee house where they pick their own beans. Look, that's not church. That is not church. It is not a sense of, of, of shopping around and picking whatever suits us best. That is a consumer mindset that just stinks and has nothing to do with the New Testament concept of fellowship in the gospel. Some people leave churches because it's better at the church down the street. That hurts the church. That hurts the church. People don't say goodbye. In the New Testament, there would not have been another church down the street. You understand, it wasn't uh, an option in Philippi to say, well, do you know what? I don't really like Lydia. I don't really like meeting in Lydia's house. I don't like how Lydia leads us because, by the way, Lydia was probably a senior leader in the church and all the ladies said amen. I, I, you know, I just I'm, I don't like Lydia's decor in her villa. I don't really like the fact that we sing at the start rather than singing at the end. Lydia doesn't make great coffee. I'm going to go to the church down the street. No, you had no option. <laughs> if you were part of the church, there was only one people of God. You didn't walk away and join a different group. It was not an option. It was this idea we have of hopping from place to place is alien to the New Testament. We need a sense of a group of people who are connected, who sit together at table and invest in one another's lives. When I say at table, I don't mean just here. I mean that picture of sitting around a table together, who sit at table together because they belong to one another. Thick and thin, no matter what's going on, they belong to one another. They are partners, they are participants, they are friends in the gospel, and they stick together. They don't just jump ship whenever something happens that irritates them a little bit. That sense of deep connecting, deep belonging, deep soul friendship that we don't work on enough in the church. We're too busy going off on projects to actually sit and really give ourselves to one another in deep, intimate soul friendship. I want your heart. I want your heart. I want your soul. I want to know who you are. Not just what are your talents that you bring to the show so that we can make the show better and bigger and brighter. What's in your heart? What makes you tick? Back to verse 5, that sense of koinonia in the gospel. 
I don't think we can really be partners in the gospel, seeing the kingdom come to our environment, to our community, if we are not friends in the gospel. Friendship is important. Friendship is really, really, really important. I disagree with intense strength with those who say that friendship among Christians is not important, that what's more important is that we get the job done. You're not getting any job done unless you create soul friendship around the gospel. And then out of that, the job gets done. Church is not something you can just take or leave. It is something you belong to, you're part of. That's why Paul uses the illustrations elsewhere of a body. You can't just take one part away and expect the body to function. We're together, united in all our diversity and difference around the gospel. And in verse 6, I jump to verse 7 without looking at verse 6. Verse 6 talks about... Paul's confidence that that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. This good work that began when the people heard the gospel down at the river that day in Acts 16 when the Holy Spirit opened Lydia's heart. And later on in in the jail in Philippi when the jailer gave his life to Christ and the seeds of the church began in Philippi. There's a work that began there and Paul says, I'm confident that God will bring that work to completion. That's the participation in the gospel. That's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we participate in what Jesus has done. And Paul is confident. He sees the the grace and the activity or the, the gracious acts and activity of God in people's lives. He sees evidence there's a, there's a verse in Acts that I mentioned a month or two ago. I can't remember the exact context, but it talks about the evidence of grace in the lives of people. And Paul sees evidence of grace, evidence of God's activity, and he, he celebrates it and he says, God is at work. It's like there's a big yellow and black or red and white roadworks sign outside Lydia's house, outside the heart of every Christian in Philippi saying, God at work. God has started something and he is going to bring it to completion. Do you ever not finish a job? I sometimes don't finish a job. I'll start off with great enthusiasm and I'll get 90% of the job done in two days and the other 10% will take about two months. I don't know about you, but and all the women, all the wives are saying, Amen. You know, they're they're husbands who are too proud to pay someone to come and do something. They insist on doing it themselves, but don't finish it. (laughs) They finish most of it, but don't finish the job. Let me tell you, God will finish the job. He'll finish the job. When God starts his kingdom work in your heart, he won't give up on you. He does not bring you so far and then leave you doesn't quit. Listen to me. God has not given up on you and he never will and he won't be finished with you until the day that you open your eyes and see his face. God has not given up on you. God hasn't got tired of you with all your flaws and mistakes and and, and failures. He hasn't got tired of you. He doesn't quit on people. And in a world where there's such a lack of commitment, in a world where people give up on one another so easily, God doesn't give up on us. 
And a church that is a partnership and a fellowship in the gospel should be a church that's known for not giving up on people. Even if it goes a bit pear-shaped for a week or a month or a year, that they don't give up on somebody. And Paul repeatedly does this in his letters. He reminds them of the future. God has started a work and we're going somewhere. He hasn't just, you know, zapped you and he's away off working on somebody else. No, he has started a process in your lives that will be completed. There is a glorious future ahead. And again, in Western consumerist Christianity, we've become so focused on having everything now that we have forgotten about our future hope that is there to give us hope through current difficulties. Paul says there is a, there is a work ongoing that will be completed in the future. Let's finish by taking a few minutes looking at how he prays for them in verses 9 to 11. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. This is a common prayer in Paul's letters. And as we read this prayer, I want you to take note of how to pray for one another in the fellowship in the gospel that is this church or for your family, or for others. This is how to pray for one another, that our love would abound more and more. It's something that Paul starts, he writes about in Thessalonians, one of his earliest letters, and he's writing about here in one of his latest letters. And this is not something that we do because we're Christians. It's not like, I don't like you, but I'm going to love you because Jesus told me that I have to. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is overflow, an overflow of love, that you would abound, that your love would abound more and more, that it would overflow to one another. What is this love? It is the love that is the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts. If you go read Romans 5, we don't have time to do it right now, but in Romans 5, we read about God's love demonstrated, or that He does demonstrate his love for us. God's love is demonstrated in that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And then the Holy Spirit takes that love and pours it into our hearts, the Trinity at work, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit pours that love into our hearts and doesn't stop there because the fruit of the Spirit is then love overflowing out of our hearts towards one another. And we need the Holy Spirit. We need to pray for one another that the Holy Spirit will continue to do that work in us and break our selfishness so that we will truly overflow with love one for another. This is not sentimental love. This again is faithful love. You read about God's love in the Old Testament. You'll read that Hebrew word hesed. That means steadfast love, loving kindness, Love that is unshakable and immovable. I know when I walk into this fellowship in the gospel that I am loved. I don't doubt it. I don't worry about it ending. I don't think that someday there won't be that love or or that that love will fail. That love is overflowing and I am safe and secure that I am loved in the fellowship and in the partnership in the gospel. It loves through thick and thin. It helps one another go on with God. It helps one another to not be distracted by other things. It encourages and challenges and exhorts one another. It calls people to press on. It phones people and says, how you doing? 
love that overflows. Your love cannot overflow if you're in isolation from the body of Christ. Who's it going to overflow to? The dog? Your love must overflow in a community, in the partnership of the gospel, the church. And we need the Spirit to make this happen. Again, in Philippi, you had so many diverse people. You had Lydia, you had the jailer, you had ex-Roman soldiers, you had the rich and the poor, the slaves and the free. You had all of these different financial, social, ethnic backgrounds who normally would cross the street rather than look at each other and pass each other by. You're going to need the work of the Holy Spirit to cause love to abound in that environment. He goes on to pray for knowledge and depth of insight. I hadn't time to tease this out the way I wanted to, but just listen to the way this is worded. That, you may, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now, I, I didn't get to dig in the commentaries on this, but that your love may abound in knowledge and depth of insight. Does that mean the more we overflow in love to one another, the more we will have knowledge and insight about how to live well? that those who let love just pour out towards others in the community of faith know how to live. There's a knowledge and there's an insight about life that comes as a result of being a person who overflows in love. I don't know whether that's just my wrong slant on this, but it does sound like one flows into the other. It reminds me of a song by Mumford & Sons. Sometimes I think (laughs) secular songwriters write things that Jesus would say, yep, that's, that's good with me. The challenge is now, can I remember what it was? Love, love will not betray you, dismay or enslave you. It will set you free to become more like the man you were made to be. In other words, love will then issue in living well, living like you were made to live. Love that flows into knowledge and depth of insight. He goes on then to say in verse 10, listen to this, so that you may be able to discern what is best. Now let's just stop there. We're going to slow down a wee minute. If our Zoom call is late, we'll be all right. To be able to discern what is best. I'm going to drop a wee bomb here and tell you that I think discernment is one of the most misunderstood and abused words in the church discernment. I think some people use the word discernment when they should really be using the word suspicion. They say that they have discernment about people. In reality, they're just suspicious about everyone. They assume that everyone is bad. And then they say, oh, that's discernment. I'm like, no, that's not discernment. That is suspicion. Discernment in the scripture is very rarely about a person. Now, I do believe the Holy Spirit can stir you. I do believe the Holy Spirit can make you aware of the fact that a person can be dangerous. But I don't think that's the core of what discernment is. That's a very negative way to look at discernment. I don't think it's what discernment means in 1 Corinthians 12 either, where I think it should be understood in the light of 1 Corinthians 14. But that's a rabbit hole that will not go down today. I think it's very closely linked with prophecy. And if you read the two chapters carefully, you'll understand why. Discerning what a prophet has said. Discerning the spirit behind it. But in this context, Paul says, I want you to be able to discern 
what is best. So can we just take the negative spin off discernment where we go around constantly being suspicious about people and actually take Paul's position, take the Bible position that we, there is a discernment that discerns what is good, what is best, that isn't just focused on sniffing out evil, but will sniff out what is good that you will be able to discern what is best. According to a, a writer called Hannah Anderson, the goal of discernment is not to simply avoid the evil in this life, but to learn what is good so that we might embrace it and enjoy it. Let's make discernment the positive word that Paul uses it as here. Discern what is best. And when he says what is best, he is using a word in Greek, The word diaphora, which means what matters, what actually counts. Now, I'm going to go on a wee one here just about this. The importance of being able to discern what matters. What is important? Because there are things that don't count. Paul says to the Galatians at the end of Galatians 6, he says, whether someone is circumcised or or uncircumcised, doesn't count. He says it doesn't matter. He never tells Jewish parents to not circumcise their sons. What he says to them is, don't make it matter. Because it doesn't matter anymore. That's your culture. Go ahead and do it, but don't make it matter. In the kingdom of God, it doesn't count. Discernment is the ability to know what matters. And I think it still flows from this overflowing love that we have for one another, that we will know how to live and that we will be able to discern what is important and what is not important. And this discernment is not limited to a few people. Paul prays that all of them would have it. All of us can have it. Okay? This ability to discern what is best. You see, division in the church comes whenever people take something that doesn't count and they make it count. When they take something that is not important and they make it important, then you get division flowing out of that. When something of, of negative or negligible value is suddenly escalated to having high importance and becoming an issue that matters. That's when you get division. In Acts 15, whenever the church, the leaders in the church at Jerusalem are writing to the believers, they say to them, it seemed good for us to tell you this. Don't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols and abstain from sexual immorality. That's it. They say to them, you'll do well to do that. They don't heap on them a whole pile of stuff. They say, these things matter. And that's enough for now. This is what counts. This is what counts. And what we do in the church is we make things matter that don't actually matter. You meet in houses. You meet in a building. It doesn't matter. Don't look down your nose at each other. You, you, you know, someone that meets in houses, don't look down your nose at people that meet in a building because they meet in a building. Don't be saying, oh, we're more like the early church because we meet in houses. No, it doesn't matter. You're both right. It doesn't matter. Don't make it an issue for division. Paul says, be able to discern what matters. Some people might think the church has got to meet on a Sunday morning. Other people think the church can meet perfectly well on a Thursday night. You're both right. It doesn't matter. 
It's not an issue. Some people think you should have communion every single week. Some people think, no, you should only have it once a month. It doesn't matter. Don't make it an issue. Discern what matters. Discern what matters. Some people get all bent out of shape if a Christian has a glass of wine occasionally with their meal. Some people get all bent out of shape if a Christian decides that they want to be teetotal and never touch wine because they've seen the damage that it can do. It doesn't matter. It's not an issue to divide over. Drunkenness and abuse and addiction, those are issues. But these are not issues. Some people get all out of shape about a hat or not wearing a hat. I remember preaching in a church one time when the girls were outside, they had little scarves around their necks. And when they came inside, when they walked through the door, some weird thing happened and they put the scarf up over their heads. Now it was a tiny scrap of fabric. There was nothing to it. It's it's ridiculous. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But we, we, we escalate these things. We divide over them. And Paul would just scream at us, for goodness sake, church, would you learn to be able to discern what is best? Would you learn to be able to discern what actually counts, what actually matters? Shall we have contemporary music with guitars and drums or shall we sing traditional hymns with organs? You can do what you like. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Paul wants us to to think like Jesus. Throughout the letter, we will be told about having the mind of Christ, learning to discern what is important, learning to know what is important, what matters. How can someone leave a church because they don't like a song? Can you imagine what Paul would say to you? Can you imagine what Jesus would say? If you just picture yourself standing at the foot of the cross as Jesus bleeds and dies to purchase a people for himself, a church, and you say to him, Jesus, I'm going to hurt your church. I'm going to leave. I'm not going to say goodbye. I'm I'm going to leave. I'm going to up sticks. I'm going to go to a different church down the street because there's this song that they sing and I don't like a line in that song. So I hope you don't mind as you bleed and die to purchase a church that I'm going to hurt because I'm going to leave because I don't like a song. Oh, honest to goodness, folks, can you see the madness of it? Paul begs you and I beg you, discern what is best, what is actually important, and stop bickering over things that don't matter, that don't matter. And how you will grow in this discernment is this. Yeah, how you will learn to think like Jesus is by getting the Bible into you. Roll around in it. Scratch about in it. Get the thing into you. Read as we go through Philippians, read it every day. Read verse or chapter 1 tomorrow and chapter 2 on Tuesday, chapter 3 on Wednesday and chapter 4 on Thursday and do the same thing again next week. Get it into you so that you may discern what is best and begin to think like Jesus. You cannot spend three or four hours a day on entertainment, 10 minutes in the scriptures, and expect to start to think biblically and be able to discern what is best. You won't be able to do it. Better speed up. Not that I wasn't going quick already. Verse verse 10 talks about being pure and blameless. Do you know what this means? This does not mean perfect. This does not mean sinless. This means that our motives and our hearts are pure and blameless. Pure means no mixture. It's a scientific word. If something is pure, you've only got one thing there. If something is a mixture, you've got other stuff there. 
And our hearts are to be places of purity. Our motives and our intentions, our actions, sometimes we will not get it right. But our hearts and our intentions and our motives need to be pure and blameless, unmixed, no hypocrisy, no two-facedness, no acting one way with one person and a different way with someone else. Pure and blameless in our hearts. We are to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That is the fruit of the Spirit. Although Paul doesn't mention the Spirit here, we know his heart for the Holy Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. And this is, according to to a, a lady called Leanne McAllister, this is whenever the lives of Christians match up with what they say they believe, whenever they are known for love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control, whenever our lives show those things, it shines a light on God and says, this is what he's like. And whenever we bicker about the things that don't count, what a horrendous, abhorrent, disgusting picture of God we give to the world. Imagine if the world looked at us and says, God must be long-suffering. Look at how long-suffering they are. God must be full of joy. Look at the joy that is overflowing in those people. Oh, we need to get this right. And again, we need the Holy Spirit to get it right. And he finishes by saying that it's all to the glory and praise of God. Eugene Peterson in the message puts it like this. He says, a life that Jesus will be proud of. Bountiful in fruits from the soul, making Jesus Christ attractive to all, getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. Church, can you find a better way to pray for one another than that? Can you find a a more beautiful picture of the community of faith than this partnership, this fellowship, this friendship in the gospel? praying for one another that our love would overflow, that we'd know how to live, that we'd be able to discern what really matters, that our hearts would be places of purity without mixture, and that we would have fruit in our lives that would show the world what God is really like. This is class stuff, absolutely class. You know, this is something, let me finish by just putting this for you. I want a Christian community that is something that cannot be found anywhere else. Now, when I say that, I don't think I don't mean I want to have a church that's better than every other church. That's not what I mean. I mean, I want our, our vision, every church, every community, I want to have a vision for Christian community that can't be found anywhere else where we give our souls to one another. And it is the safest place on earth, which is what Larry Crabb writes about the church. How many people have gone into the church and found it a dangerous place where they've got hurt? The church is to be the safest place on earth and we should tenaciously defend it. I think Linda, Linda read last week, and I hope I quote this right, I think she read during our Zoom call after the, the message, about the opposite of addiction being connectedness. I hope I've got that right. But the opposite of addiction is being connected into a community. And the most powerful place, I really believe this, the most powerful place for the healing of the mental illness that we see so apparent in our communities, 
the most powerful place to see the healing of that and the trauma associated with it is a loving community. If we get right what Paul prescribes here in Philippians 1, 3 to 11, if we truly function the way we should function, I think GPs would start to refer people to the church. I think they would start to say, do you know what? There's a community of people down the street who sit at table together and they love each other deeply. You will be welcomed there. You will be accepted there. They will bear with you even when you mess up. They will not give up on you. Even if you mess up for a week, if you mess up for a month, if you mess up for a year, they will not quit on you. They will not be disappointed in you when you struggle. Go there and be healed. It's a glorious picture. I've taken way too long. Half the church has probably stopped listening and gone on to Zoom. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this incredible picture of the church friendship in the gospel. Lord, will you stir our hearts, stir our hearts with this. Stir our hearts with what this can look like. Give us that overflow of love and that ability to really know what matters and what does not matter. That people would not split and divide and fall out over things that don't matter, but that together we would know what matters, the gospel, the overflow of love, the fruit of the character of God in our lives. It's all for your glory, and it's all for your praise. Amen. Amen. Bless you. See some of you soon. Thank you very much. Bye.